Acts in chapter 9. And now we find uh, here uh, later in the book of Acts that he will take three missionary journeys where he will share the gospel. He'll look to plant churches. And we see this morning the end of the second of those three journeys that he'll uh, take part in. And so Acts chapter 18 is where we're going to be in just a moment. When I was in high school, my senior year, I started running uh, competitively. I ran on our track team there in high school. And then after high school, I... um, uh, ran here locally for a couple of years while I attended Armstrong. I ran, for those who are familiar with track and field, I ran unattached, and then I ran with a, with a local track club here. And, uh, and then after that, I transferred to Georgia, where I walked on to the track team there. And so for about four or five years of my life, track and field was a part of my life, and it was a significant part of my life. I was, it, it seemed like everything it seemed, seemingly revolved around that sport for me. And whenever you look at track and field, if you've ever followed it at all, mostly, generally, in Olympic years is whenever people take note of it in our own country. But a lot of people mistakenly see track and field as just simply an individual sport, and it's really not. It's a team sport, believe it or not, whether at the high school or collegiate or national level or international level, it is a collegiate, or rather, it is a, a, a team sport. It is a, a, a grouping of individual uh, events, but it is a team sport. Well, when you look at track and field as it takes place, however, there, is, there, are, there are a couple of events that obviously are team in nature, and those are the relays. You may have the 4x100-meter relay, which is the, just the one trip around the track, or you have the 4x400-meter relay, which is a mile in length. And when you watch that, it's very obvious you've got four people competing as a part of that relay team, and it's obvious that that is a team sport. And the goal of that, obviously, is to take that baton. It's just a simple little metal baton, 12 inches roughly in length, 5 inches in diameter, weighing just a few ounces. And the goal is to take that baton and to pass it efficiently and effectively to the next runner on your team. Now, if you've watched it in Olympics or if you've watched it on television at all or in person, then you've recognized that as important as the speed of those who run is that exchange from one runner to the next. And there are a couple of things that are key in that. Number one, you have to pass it effectively. It has to be a smooth pass. You can't drop it or you're done. You can't have a mistake in that pass or you're done. It has to be passed effectively and efficiently. But at the same time, you have to operate within the boundaries that are there. You have a set lane in which to operate. You can't make that pass whenever you want. It has to be within, a set, uh, uh, within set boundaries for that pass to take place. And if it's not passed within those boundaries, you're disqualified. Now, let me just take that analogy for a moment, and let's apply it to the Christian life. Let's say the track is life. Life lived on a daily basis. Let's say that the members of your relay team are other believers, other people who, as you, have a relationship with Christ. They've turned from their sin. They've placed their faith in Jesus. They have a relationship with God that is real, that is genuine. The moment they die, they're going straight to heaven in the presence of God. And so the track is life. The, the, the team members of your relay are other believers. But let's say that the baton is maturity in Christ. And so the picture here is passing our maturity as believers on to other believers. Passing our experiences as a Christian on to other believers who are part of the same team that we're on. That's what we're looking at this morning. That's the analogy that I want you to keep in mind as we look at what it means to pass our faith on and what it means to pass the baton of Christian maturity. Now let me just say this, that if... If the Christian life, if Christianity as a whole, as a faith, was a relay race, here's what I submit to you. In our country, by and large, Christianity would either be disqualified (laughs) or it would be a distant last in this country. And the reason is this. What we often hear taught from pulpits just like this, 
what is commonplace today in Christian literature, in television evangelists, in churches all over this country, is that many times what is being taught is something that is outside the bounds of what you read in your Bible. And it's passed off as Christianity. It's passed off as true biblical doctrine. However, much of what we hear today, thankfully not everything, but much of what we hear today, if you're not careful, will not line up with the truth of God's Word. I remember my mom telling me when I was a kid, I didn't understand it, but I remember her telling me specifically, don't watch church on TV. And that was her input to me as a little kid. And I understand why now. Because whatever you hear on TV doesn't always turn out to be biblical. Does that make sense? And so, by and large, Christianity today seemingly has had much added to it that has fallen outside the bounds of Scripture, disqualifying some, even from the Christian faith, because they've gravitated so far from what Scripture teaches. But I would also say at the same time that just like a relay race where that baton is not passed effectively and efficiently on to the next runner in line, in many cases, Christianity today would be a distant last. Why? Because those who have a mature walk with God are not passing on our maturity and our faith to those also who have a relationship with Christ. We're not taking the experiences that we have in our walk with the Lord. We're not taking the maturity that God has engrafted in us through the years. And we're not taking that maturity and passing it on to those who also run the race with us in the local congregation we call this church or in in the body of Christ as well. We're not passing on the maturity that God has, has through the years molded into our walks with God. And we've come to the place where, if not careful, we see our Christian faith as isolated unto ourselves. And our Christian walk, our walk with God, is nothing more than just showing up on a Sunday. And God just bless me and keep the blessings coming. Keep me comfortable. Keep me in a place where I know you're on my side. And as long as those things are in order, and as long as I'm comfortable, and as long as I'm being fed, and as long as I'm being blessed, then that's all there is to the Christian life. But I would submit to you, reading the book of Acts and letting the book of Acts read me shows me that there is much more to the Christian journey journey than that. It is not an isolated uh, personal event. It is a relay where we are instructed and it's patterned for us to take our maturity and to pass it on to the next person. We're going to see it demonstrated today in the book of Acts chapter 18 as we finish out this passage. And so let's look at a principle that I believe is going to come out of these verses we're going to look at as we finish chapter 18. And I hope you'll jot this principle down because we're going to sift through this passage. And I believe you'll see this principle come to the top. And that principle is this, is that every believer's walk with God must be developed and passed on. Every believer, and that includes you, that especially includes you and me, that if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, then it is imperative. It is a mandate. It is a command. It is a matter of life and death, seemingly, because this world will eat your lunch if you allow it to, and if you don't walk deeply and closely with God, that it, it is of utmost importance that every believer in their walk with God be developed and that it be passed on to those who are walking that same walk alongside of us. And so pick up with me here in Acts chapter 18. Let's begin in verse, in verse 18, and we're going to sift through the end of this chapter and begin to see how this principle begins to, to take place. Now just remember a little bit of context here, and what you'll see in these verses is that Paul has left the city of Corinth. It's coming to the close of his second missionary journey. He's left the city of Corinth. And Corinth, much like today in our country, is like Vegas. You know, remember last week what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That's the kind of city that Corinth was. They had a temple there in the city of Corinth, that was, it, it, it was um, served by 1,000 temple prostitutes under the guise of religion. 
And so when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, written 40 years after these events in the book of Acts, it's interesting. When Paul says to flee immorality, that our, temple, that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, he's saying that to the group of Christians living in the city of Corinth for a reason. It's because their understanding of religion involved gross immorality. And Paul is giving them truth to help restructure and reform their idea of what God wants them to be. And so we find here in the city of Corinth that this is a city, though very wealthy, Though heavily populated, though it was in a strategic place on the map, it was a city in need of the gospel. You may remember from last week, Corinth was an interesting city in that it was located on a little strip of land about three and a half miles wide. And it's in what is modern day Greece today. And if you're traveling from northern Greece down to southern Greece, you had to pass through Corinth. And so there were a lot of people that passed through. Corinth was a strategic city in the Roman Empire. A lot of people passed through there. In fact, because it was a port city, people would sail to Corinth so that they didn't have to go all the way around the southern tip of what we call Greece today. And they had an early railroad system there where they had a a series of logs that were stretched out. And you could pull your smaller ships. These sailors could pull their ships up across these logs, across that three-and-a-half-mile strip of land, and get to the other side and sail across the sea. It would shorten their trip dramatically. Corinth was a strategic city. Paul would spend a year and a half there, not just leading people to Christ, but pouring into those believers. And then we'll see here in this passage that he would sail down, ultimately make his way to Ephesus, back over to Asia again as he would begin to conclude his second journey. And so pick up with me verse 18 of Acts chapter 18. Let's begin to work through this passage. It says in verse 18, Paul, having remained many days longer, that's in Corinth, took leave of the brethren, and he put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Centria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Now let me just stop there for just a moment because that's an interesting comment there. The Bible doesn't tell us why Paul would have his hair cut as part of this vow. It's not a central part of this passage, so I won't spend much time there because the Bible doesn't give us much information. Apparently, this was a Nazarite vow that Paul was keeping, and it included him uh, uh, ultimately making his way to Jerusalem, where, which he will do at the end of this passage. But it tells us that he leaves Corinth, and it says specifically in there, he takes with him Priscilla and Aquila. Now, we mentioned this couple, this married couple, last week. Let me remind you about Priscilla and Aquila, because they're going to be important coming up later in this passage. Priscilla and Aquila were just an ordinary married couple. They had been uh, uh, run out of Rome because of a, a, a basically a decree that had been passed. They were followers of Christ. They had a deep and a mature faith. And yet their occupation was not any kind of a professional ministry. They were tent makers. And what Priscilla and Aquila did was that they would house a church in their home. They had already gave lodging to Paul in his time of need. And we find in the New Testament that this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, were faithful to to allow churches to meet in their home, even at great risk to themselves. And so Paul has Priscilla and Aquila with him. Verse 19, it says, They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. And when they had asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. So what Paul does is he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and he sails away. Let me just share a little bit about the city of Ephesus because it's going to be important. The city of Ephesus, much like Corinth, was a city in need of the gospel. 
It was a city that was significant in size. In fact, the fourth largest city in the world during the first century. It was at its pinnacle during the first and second centuries. What, during the time that Paul was there, it was a city that pretty much was home to about 250,000 people. A temple of Artemis was there. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And so the city of Ephesus was an important city. Paul comes through that city. He leaves behind Priscilla and Aquila. And he makes his way forward in his journey. Look at what it says in verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, Caesarea was pretty much the port of call for Jerusalem. He went up and he greeted the church. That would be the church at Jerusalem where it all started in Acts chapter 2. And he went down to Antioch. This then would finish out his second missionary journey. Verse 23 begins his third journey. It says, having spent some time there, he left and he passed successfully through the Galatian region in Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now look at what happens next because it's going to introduce a person that we've not heard of yet in the book of Acts. And I want you to follow me. They're going to go back to the city of Ephesus and pick up the story there. Look at verse 24. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. Remember, Paul is not there anymore. A Priscilla and Aquila are. And it says that he, Apollos, was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. Now, it's significant for us to read of Apollos there. He's going to come to play later in the New Testament as well. But let me tell you a little bit about him, and it comes right out of what you just read. Apollos was a Jew by heritage. He was apparently born and raised in Alexandria, in Egypt, North Africa. He somewhere along the way had come to a knowledge of Jesus. He had some knowledge of Christ. The Bible says he was eloquent. In other words, he was a skilled communicator. He was one who knew how to convincingly present an argument. He knew how to tie thoughts together. And God had given him a real talent at being able to communicate things in a way that made a difference in the lives of those who would listen to him. The Bible tells us also that he was mighty in the Scriptures. He knew God's Word. In this context here, it would have meant the Old Testament. In fact, Martin Luther said that it was Apollos, very possibly, who wrote the New Testament book of Hebrews a book in the New Testament that deals largely with the Old Testament. And so this was a man who was eloquent, he was a great communicator, he was bold, he was tenacious, he did not back down, he was mighty in the Scriptures, he knew what he was talking about, and he was willing to talk about Christ. But there was a problem. Look at what it says at the end of verse 25 again. It says that he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of of John, and that's important. If you look back in the days of John the Baptist before Jesus' ministry began, John the Baptist's ministry involved baptisms of repentance. In other words, it was a looking forward to Jesus, the Messiah who would come. And that baptism was a baptism of repenting of sin. Since Jesus had come, however, since he had died on the cross, and since he had already ascended into heaven, the, the, the picture of salvation was now more complete in order of how it was to be communicated. 
What Apollos was communicating was that people needed to repent and turn from sins. What he was leaving out was the cross and the resurrection. He knew Jesus. He knew the truth of the scriptures. However, his knowledge was a bit incomplete. It says in verse 25 that he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. And so his message, as authoritative and as compelling and as eloquent as it was, left out the cross, and it left out the resurrection. Here's what happens next, and this is, this is intriguing. Look at verse 26. It says, He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, here's this couple again that Paul left in Ephesus, when they heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. <laughs> and so you've got this couple who are mature in their faith, their walk with God is not on the surface. It is deep. They are planting churches. They are risking their own necks. They are housing a missionary, Paul. They are in the trenches. They are on the front lines. They are on the cutting edge. Their lives are making a difference. And here they are in Ephesus where the church will meet in their home. And they hear this guy with incredible potential. His name is Apollos. But he doesn't have the whole story. His heart is right. His information is accurate. But he's not quite there. And the Bible says in verse 26 that when they heard him, they took him aside and they explained the way of God to him more accurately. What an awesome picture. They didn't chastise him. They didn't beat him down. They didn't say, get off the pulpit till you learn more. They didn't do any of that stuff. It's as though they put an arm around him and said, son, just, just won't you come over to our house today? Why don't you come have dinner with us, spend a few days? And they explained to him what he was missing. They poured their lives into his. And because their walk had been developed in private, listen, they were able to pass on their maturity like a, like a baton to the next runner on the team, effectively, accurately, and smoothly. And the race continued. Look at what it says next, verse 27. It says, when he wanted to go across, this is Apollos, when he wanted to go across to Achaia, that's a region where Corinth was, the brethren encouraged him, and they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures, look at his message now, that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior. He had died, he had risen, and he was the way of salvation. That was now his message. Why? Because a couple named Priscilla and Aquila saw the potential poured in their maturity and the race moved forward the race moved forward and made a difference as a result Apollos's potential lacked maturity Priscilla and Aquila's maturity needed potential to pour into and God put the two together perfectly. You say, Brooks, I wonder what kind of potential or what kind of impact Apollos would have. Look over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to notice something here. Uh, as an aside, I want you to notice something here that's interesting. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians four years later after the church was planted at Corinth. 
Remember, Apollos would come into fellowship with Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. Then he would sail to Corinth, where he would apparently remain for a while, teaching and preaching. Forty years later, Paul writes this letter to the church at Corinth, and he has to correct he has to correct an issue, probably of no fault for Apollos, but it shows us the impact of Apollos' life. Look at what he writes, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3. Paul writes to this church four years later at Corinth, and he says, For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Here's what was happening in this church within four years. He had a group of people that had developed their own faction that said, I am a part of Paul's ministry. Paul is the one who impacted my life. Paul is the one who poured into me. And then he had another faction within that church that said, no, 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 I'm part of Apollos' ministry, the skilled speaker Apollos, the one who can answer every question. I'm part of his ministry. And there were factions springing up in that early church in Corinth. No fault of Apollos', but it shows the impact of his life, that his life was making a difference. It was impacting people. These people needed maturity but his life was making a difference. And it all started when two people, Priscilla and Aquila, chose to pour in their experiences, their maturity, their growth, into the life of another. And they saw that baton passed, that baton of maturity from one life to the next. Now let's bring this home for a second. This has application to us as Christians in our own lives, and it has application to us as a church. There's a danger, I believe, that infects virtually every church, including this one. One of those dangers would be Christians who don't grow. You know, there's a reason that this principle is worded the way that it is, that every believer's walk with God must be developed. And if you're going to be like Christ, and if I'm going to be like Christ, we have to spend time in His Word. We have to spend time with other believers to be sharpened. We have to spend time in prayer. We have to spend time developing our walk with Christ. It does not come magically. There's no magic potion. There's no quick pill that we can take that makes us like Jesus. It takes work. It takes devotion. It takes effort for us to be like our Savior. And I will say, I will go so far as to say, Christian, that if you're not spending time consistently in Scripture, reading Scripture, letting Scripture read you, if you're not allowing your motivations to be challenged by the truth of God's Word, if you're not letting your lifestyle be challenged by the truth of God's Word, if you're not allowing the encouragement that you need to come from God's Word, if you're not letting the heart of God grip your heart and mold and shape and change you, then you, Christian, are weak in your faith. I don't have to know you personally to make that statement. You're weak. You're an infant. You're feeding still on milk when you could be and should be feeding on the depths of the meat of God's Word. And there's going to be a time that's going to come, I'm just saying, and it won't be because God is angry at you. It's because the life we live is a hard life. When you will face a challenge and just listen to me and hear me, you will wish you had made the investment at that time to go deep in the Word of God. Because you'd be clamoring for a faith that is not mature, that you wish you had, that you could have, if you had just gone deep, consistently. If I had a dollar, man, for every time that God took something out of his word and he applied it to my life just when I needed it, and all it took was me 
bowing before reading and being open to what God wanted me to see. Not looking for writing in the sky, not listening for some audible voice, but just reading the word that's so clear, letting God make application to my life. If I had a dollar for every time God gave me the encouragement just when I needed it, when God gave me direction just when I needed it, when God gave me assurance just when I needed it, I would be a rich, rich man today because he does it consistently through spending time in his word. And if you're not there... And if you're not developing it, and if you're living life as on an island, literally, spiritually, where you are just an island unto yourself, and there is no Christian influence, you're not involved in a small group where life change most often takes place. You're not involved in a Sunday school Bible study class. You're not involved in some way where other Christians are sharpening you as you interact with the Word of God and as it reads your life. If you're not there, then your faith is shaky at best. So we have to take steps to develop our want with God. Priscilla and Aquila took those steps. And when the time came for them to pour on, or to pour into and to pass along their faith to another, they were ready. And God used them. You say, Brooks, is there, is there any specific admonition for me to do this? Look over with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want you to notice something. 2 Timothy chapter 2. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, what we see here is more than likely Paul's last letter that he would write before being executed for his faith. He writes it to Timothy. He had led Timothy to faith already earlier in the book of Acts in Lystra during his first missionary journey. Paul would lead Timothy to faith in Christ, and now Timothy would receive encouragement from Paul years later. Read what Paul writes to him. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, The things which you have heard from me, he says to Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, what Paul is saying to Timothy is, Timothy, in the same way now that you've come to Christ, and in the same way that you have grown deep in your relationship with God, just as your walk with God has been developed and matured through the, through the weeks and through the months and through the years, he says, I want you to take everything you've heard from me, verse 2, and I want you to entrust it, to pass it on as a baton to the next runner, to faithful men who will also be able to teach others and pass the baton on to them. He says, Timothy, the norm in ministry is not to just soak it all in for yourself as a reservoir. The, the norm in ministry is to be a conduit, is to, it is to be a channel where you invest your maturity, your experiences, your growth with God into the lives of other people who are coming along behind you. Listen to what it says in the book of Titus, one book further to the right. Much the same thing, Titus chapter 2. Just listen. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. 
Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will, not be, uh, will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. In other words, the picture in Titus 2 is to take what you have in maturity and pass it on to the next person. Teaching, instructing, encouraging, passing it on from one person to the next. Paul knew he couldn't do it himself. Paul knew as he traveled the globe, as he traveled with the gospel message, that he could plant churches, but he couldn't pastor every one of them. And what he did as a, as a model in ministry and as a model in the life of a believer is that he would pour into others and encourage them to pour into others and encourage them to pour into others. And the race would go on and on and on. One life poured into the next, poured into the next, which both spread the gospel and took Christians deep. Every believer's, even yours, walk with God must be developed. So what are you doing to develop that walk? Are you in a small group? Are you in a Bible study? Are you spending time in God's word? It must be developed and it must be passed on. I wonder how many of you would say, those of you in the business world, how many of you would say, you know, in my business life, I had another person who mentored me, who poured into me, who showed me the ropes. Maybe it was a boss or a supervisor or a colleague who'd been there before you arrived. But there was somebody professionally who I can say strategically poured into my life. They mentored me. How many of you would raise your hand and say there's been someone like that? Okay, quite a few of you. How many of you would say that in a spiritual sense, in a Christian sense, that there has been a person, not that you admire, but who has come alongside of you, who has strategically uh, mentored you, poured into you, and specifically spent time with you to help you develop in your Christian walk? Specifically, not as a Sunday school teacher, but you specifically. How many would say that you know of someone like that? I'd be willing to say that in every case, your life is a product of their investment and your want with God is stronger as a result. The question now is, are you willing to do the same? In my life, there are three men that I can think of without even having to give thought that come to mind that made that kind of a difference for me. One was a man named Ray. I was a student at the University of Georgia, beginning to make some poor choices, immature in my faith, had gone there to run track, but the real reason God had me there was to connect, I believe, with Ray Lawrence. It was through Ray's impact as a part of the staff member of Athletes in Action, a ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ, that Ray began to come alongside of me and he began to pour into me and we'd meet every week. And he would instruct me in what it meant to be a Christian and what it meant to live out the Christian faith on a daily basis on a college campus as a young man. And his life made a difference because he passed it along. God would call me into ministry not long after I graduated from college. I would take my first ministry position. And during that time, there would be another man in my life, a guy named Mike, who served a large church here in town, a church that I wasn't a part of, a church that I wasn't on staff at, a church I didn't give to, and a church that I didn't attend. 
And yet he was willing to take me under his wing and every Monday I would go to his office and he would spend time with me helping me to sort through what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to be a minister, what it meant to make a difference and his life impacted mine in ways that I still bear the marks today after 20 years. And then there was Jim, a pastor that I would serve with just before going off to seminary. Still a friend of mine today. I can call him in an instant and he would answer and give me all the time I needed who is a man that is far wiser than I could ever hope to be, a man who has been through many, many experiences, and yet he will pass it along to anyone interested. And he did for me, and still does. And if somehow you could trace the lines of my walk and my ministry today, invariably those lines would go to one of those three men because they took the, the baton of their maturity and they passed it on to one who needed it. And so what about you? What about you? Christian, do you have a walk worth passing on? If not, then you need to take steps to grow deep with Christ. You need to develop that maturity. But if you've begun to develop it, you don't have to be the next saint or the next Billy Graham or the next person with their name written in the Christian Hall of Fame. You don't have to be that. You just have to have a heart on fire for God and a willingness to grow, and you are ready to pass on to another believer what God is pouring into you. And so who is in your life today, Christian, that you can say, I'm passing the baton effectively to those behind me to help them to be more like Jesus, passing on what he's poured into me so that another might benefit as a result? Where would the church of Ephesus or of Corinth be? If not for Priscilla and Aquila, here's what they would have got. They would have received doctrine that was incomplete. But because Priscilla and Aquila took this young Apollos under their arm and painted the picture for him, that church in Corinth benefited because what they got was truth that was poured in from a couple who made a difference. Let's pray. God, I know in front of me today is an absolute gold mine of Christian maturity. Lord, most of us who have walked with you for some time only see how far we've got to go. We, the, the more we grow in Christ, the more sensitive we are in our sin and in our shortcomings and in our weaknesses. But yet, God, if we're willing to look, if we've spent time with you, God, you are doing a work in us that is worth passing on. And I pray as I look out across those in this congregation today, those in our church, seeing the maturity that's there, I pray that you would just engraft in us a real burden to pass along that faith to another Christian who can, be, who can benefit from our maturity. Lord, bring to mind one person, I pray, in these days to come who we can come alongside of, who we can spend time with, who we can initiate mentoring and discipling. And Father, for those of us who still have a need to be mentored, may we seek out a person to pour into us as well. May this church grow deeply. May these islands be impacted because of a church that is mature, that sees the lostness around us, and that is willing to make a difference. And so God, for those as well this morning who don't know Christ, who don't have a Savior, may they find the truth of the gospel to ring true in their lives. May they yield their lives today to Jesus, who's already died, who's already risen, to forgive them and to take over their lives. Bless now these decisions, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name, amen.